0: 16 through 34 This talks about Paul and Silas in prison once we were going to the place of prayer where we were met by a female slave who had had a spirit by which she predicted the future she earned a great deal of money for her owners by fortune telling she followed Paul and the rest of us shouting these men are servants of the most high God who are telling you the way to be saved she kept us up for many days finally Paul became so annoyed I like this part That he turned around and said to the spirit, In the name of Jesus Christ, I command you to come out of her. And at that moment, the spirit left her. When her owners realized that their hope of making money was gone, they seized Paul and Silas and dragged them into the marketplace to face the authorities. They brought them before the magistrates and said, These men are Jews, and they are throwing our city into an uproar by advocating customs unlawful for us Romans to accept or practice. At once, all the prisoner doors flew open and everyone's chains came loose. The jailer woke up, and when he saw the prison doors open, he drew his sword and was about to kill himself because he thought the prisoners had escaped. But Paul shouted, Don't harm yourself! We are all here! The jailer called for lights, rushed in, and fell trembling before Paul and Silas. He brought them out and asked, Sir, what must I do to be saved? They replied, Believe in the Lord, your Jesus Believe in the Lord Jesus, and you will be saved, and you and your household. Then they spoke the word of the Lord to him and all the others in the house. At that hour of the night, the jailer took them and washed their wounds. They immediately, he and all his household were baptized. The jailer brought them into his house and set a meal before them. He was filled with joy because he had come to believe in God, and he and his whole household.
1: We got to tell you, everyone, thanks, Cody, for reading that. Second service, daylight savings time, you are my people, okay? First service, not my people, but you are my people. Last week at this time, I was with a group, I was one of 31 uh, middle school, high school students, and adults who were at Mission Waco. And we spent the weekend, about half of us spent the weekend going through a poverty simulation, and the other half of us spent the weekend doing some work projects around Waco and and even having some great experiences. Last Saturday evening, middle school students and some of our adults got the opportunity to spend about an hour and a half at a homeless shelter in Waco visiting with these homeless people and learning that maybe some of the pictures we have and some of the things we've thought about homelessness aren't quite what we've thought before. But it was a great experience and as we finished up, of course, those doing the poverty simulation as we're heading out of town, You know, a couple of them looked at me and they're like, we're stopping for lunch, right? I said, yeah, we'll stop for lunch. We stopped. And I'll tell you what, I've never seen even teenagers consume the amount of food that they got as they came back to the van for us to head home. But Mission Waco is in the north central part of Waco, what used to be a really uh, great community to live in. It was the place in Waco a long time ago in the 50s where people wanted to live, Close to a hospital, close to Baylor University, Uh, everything was right there. It was the place to be. But as places sometimes do over time, it became a less desirable place to live. And so, what was once a nice community became a community filled with violence, drugs, and alcohol. There's a, a theater that Mission Waco has now taken over, that in the 70s was a theater that I would think none of us would probably visit, at least no claiming Christian would want to visit. And this place was rough. When the late 80s, early 90s, a family moved into this neighborhood and decided they were going to be Jesus in this toughest part of Waco. And they had started a church, the church under the bridge, which is right under I-35. In fact, they're meeting right now, right there. If you pass, if you're driving through Waco, if you were driving through Waco right now, you would drive over the church as they were gathered, if you're driving on 35. But they started this church and, and they moved into this community and they started to be Jesus in this community that was rough. And people took notice and some became Christians. And some things started happening differently, but there were others who didn't like it so much because their way of making money, their way of life was being threatened by this new power that was coming from the outside. This is kind of what's going on in Philippi at this time. Now, I don't want you to get the picture of Philippi as being a place that's anything like north-central Waco or um, any type of rough, run-down place. It's not. It's a wealthy area, it's a nice place. In fact, when you've been a good Roman soldier, a place like Philippi is where you get a piece of land to settle down, saying thank you for your service to our country, thank you for your time, we're gonna take care of you and your family and here's your land in Philippi or someplace like this and you can have a nice life the rest of your life. So that's what it's like, but these powers are colliding at the time. And our story opens up with with Paul and Silas. And they are having a bad day. I know we got a lot of kids in here this morning. So let me ask, I want to ask the kids a question this morning. How many of you, and kids at heart, because I remember this from when I was a kid. How many of you have heard of a story called Alexander and the Terrible, Horrible, No Good, Very Bad Day? Anyone? Anyone heard of that? Read that before? Yeah, I read it as a little kid. I read it to my girls now. Well, this would be a day. And where does he want to move? He wants to move to... Australia, right? This would, be, this would be a day that Paul and Silas, if they knew about Australia, would probably say, I'd rather be in Australia. Because things aren't going well for them. And it starts with this first encounter with this slave girl and she's walking around following them around town saying, these guys are talking about the most high God and telling people how to be saved. Now, let's understand what they're saying, what she's saying here, what people would be understanding as she says most high God. She may be, as a spirit is in her, identifying that the most high God that we know now is who they're talking about. But people would hear this and people would probably not pay a lot of attention because they would hear most high God and they would think Zeus or Caesar or whatever God they chose in their life to be the most high God at the time. So it's not that big a deal to hear someone talking about most high God. Either way, she's following them around and whether Paul's getting annoyed or whether he just doesn't want this publicity or whatever it is, he decides to do something about it. And he turns around and he, in the name of Jesus, he casts the spirit out and you'd think that it would just be over right there because he solved one problem, but guess what? That leads to another problem because she was the moneymaker for some people. And so now that she can no longer make money for them, they're angry. And, of course, they get Paul and Silas, and they come to them, and they take them in front of the, the civil leaders, and the crowd gets going, and they, they tell some truths. And they tell some half-truths in this political arena, which maybe we've seen before. And either way, Paul and Silas end up in prison. See, what we're looking at here is the power of God is coming into contact with other powers of the world. They're coming into contact, it's coming into contact with a religious power that's not so godly, but it's religious Nonetheless, with the spirit that this girl has, it's coming into contact with financial power as you see the owners who are now not able to make the money they once made. It's coming into contact with political power as they appeal to the magistrates and they get the crowd involved and they get Paul and Silas thrown into prison. And what we have here is we have the trifecta of things that you don't talk about at a party we have religion, money, and politics. And if you think about it, go back to the gospels for a minute. When Jesus is challenging people, when Jesus to other people, when Jesus becomes threatening to other people, isn't it because one of the things that he's doing is he's challenging the religious order or the financial order or the political order? Think about it when he says That the Sabbath was made for man, not man for the Sabbath. He's challenging that religious order. When he goes into the temple and he throws out the money changers, he's challenging that financial order and even the religious and political order. All of this is going on all of the time. And it's easy for us to recognize because these three powers are still in our culture today. There is the established religious culture, some of which has to do with Christianity and faith, and some of which has to do with nothing about God, but is religious nonetheless. There's an established financial order. There's an established political order. And the message of Jesus often challenges these things, and that's what Paul is doing in Philippi. He is challenging the established order, the status quo. But even in this collision of power, Paul and Silas still manage to honor God. And how do we know this? How do they do this? Because it says, if you keep reading, that Paul and Silas are in prison and they're complaining about their situation, right? That's not what it says. That's what I would do. That's what some of you may do. It doesn't say they're complaining about their situation. It doesn't say they're griping and moaning. It says they are praying and singing hymns to God. We've talked about prayer in the past, but I wanna talk about singing for a minute. Music is powerful. I bet quite a few of you in here play an instrument or at one time played an instrument. Hopefully all of us sing. Because there was some great singing that I heard this morning. But music is a powerful thing. I believe, and, and if somebody wants to challenge me on this or throw a third one in here, you can do this at some point, but I think there are two universal languages. Love, because everyone can understand a hug. Everyone can understand a smile. And the other one is music. Because whether you like a certain type of music or not, or whether you understand the words that are being sung, you can identify with the fact that that is a language that speaks to people. Even if if you're in another culture, music and love cross cultures. Think about it for just a minute. There there are certain songs that you hear that transport you to a specific moment. A song that you hear that takes you back to a special time in your life or to a difficult time in your life. We heard this morning during the communion thought, Dennis shared about a song that's impacted him his entire life, and he's able to tie that to a moment, an important moment of taking the bread and drinking the cup together. Allison and I talk about this all the time because we'll be driving down the road and we'll hear a song and she'll say, 1993, driving down Davis Road on the way to Lamar High School, or Will say ACU in the dorm, doing that. You know, you hear, you hear a song and it puts you in that moment. And I'll be honest, there are certain songs we'll hear. She'll hear a song and she'll say, "Oh, this was on the, in the car on the way to our third date." And I don't remember that quite as well as she does, but I trust her. And in my defense, in my defense, I do know that it's a song by the band Chicago. And that every Chicago song sounds alike. <laughs> so you can't hold me to that specific song. But we hear those songs, and it takes us to a specific moment, and it gives us that, that feeling that maybe we had when we heard it the first time. And it's also interesting. You know, you haven't heard a song for 20, 30 years, and it comes on the radio, and you don't even realize it, but you can sing every single word to that song. But there are other things that you can't remember at all. Because music is powerful. And for Paul and Silas, singing takes them out of their current situation and it puts them in a different place. It puts them in the presence of God. Because when we sing praises to God, we are instantly in his presence. Scripture even tells us that God lives in the praise of his people. And when we sing we are proclaiming that God is alive and God is living in that, that sound, in those words, in that music. Friday night, Allison and I got the opportunity to go with Matt and Kristen Mazza, another one of our ministers and his wife, to the Chris Tomlin concert over in, uh, over in Grand Prairie. And in fact, I see some in here this morning who were there. I saw you there. And there is something about, now it was a concert. It was billed as a concert. But I will tell you, it was praise to God. And there is something about being in a theater with 6,500 other, mostly Christians. There may have been some non-Christians there. I hope there were. I really hope there were. But 6,500 other, mostly believers, singing words of praise to God. And the energy that comes from that and the excitement that comes from that. And there is something that... It does inside of me when I hear that. There's something that happens inside of me when, I, when the songs we're singing this morning and the energy that's there from that. It's because God lives in the praise of his people. And so in our singing, one of the things that I would ask us and I would encourage you to think about, in the way you sing, and I don't mean tone and I don't mean notes and all of this, but in the way you sing from your heart, would people see that God is alive in that? I want people to come in here. When they hear us singing and see us singing, I want people to know that God is real and is alive because God lives in the praise of his people. But as they're singing, as they're praying, as they're honoring God, even in the midst of this circumstance, this earthquake happens and the jail is shaken and the chains fall off and the gates fall, uh, fall apart and everything just goes Chaotic. And the jailer falls down and, and I can imagine him getting up and, and looking around and seeing the gate and thinking, oh my goodness, this is bad. This is really bad. What prisoner in their right mind is still going to be inside those gates when everything's just been opened up for him? And my guess is that this jailer remembers the story that we heard not too long ago about Peter. And when Peter escaped, what happened to those jailers and those guards that were there? It wasn't pretty. In fact. Life ended for them because they didn't do their job. So he's got that story in his mind as he sees this, and he's about to go ahead and carry out his own sentence. When he hears people say, wait, we're still here. Don't do that. And he rushes in, and he sees everything, and and he falls down, and he says, sirs, what must I do to be saved? Now, we know the question he's really asking there. We know the deeper side of that question. But in that, in that day and age, just like the idea of a most high God, the idea of being saved would be a little bit different. When I was a teenager, I got in trouble once because I would, one time when I got in trouble, let me rephrase that, um, one time when I got in trouble, it was because I was late for curfew. I was hanging out with some friends. I think I was supposed to be in at like 11 or 11.30. We're just hanging out, having a good time. We weren't necessarily doing anything wrong. And it was pre-cell phone, so I didn't just, couldn't just pull out the cell phone and text or call, say, hey, Mom, Dad, I'm going to be running late, any of that. Didn't have a phone. Um, we're at a restaurant. And I looked down, and I was about half an hour late already. I'm thinking, this is going to be bad. So by the time I get home, it's about 45 minutes late. And I know my dad is going to kill me. So the question in my mind at the time as I'm going in that I want to ask my dad is, what must I do to be saved? <laughs> and that's what this guy is thinking. At least my take on this is, that's his, that's his real question. How do I get out of this mess? Can you help me out here? That would be their idea of, say, of being saved, of, of being rescued from the moment. But Paul and Silas see the deeper question. And they speak to the deeper need, the deeper mess in the jailer's life that the truth about Jesus addresses. And the jailer and his family give their life and place their faith in Jesus that night. They hear the word of the Lord and they're baptized. And they begin their experience of true salvation. The exchange of our life for the life of Christ that brings peace and joy and hope And a new identity, even in the present circumstance. You see, everyone in Acts 16 is in some mess of a situation. You have Paul and Silas in jail. You have this jailer with this tough situation. Even the people at the beginning of the story, everyone is in a mess. But the difference is in the response. You know, the jailer's initial response is a natural one. How do I fix this? How do I get out of this? But as Christians, we see the big mess that the world is in. We see the human rebellion. We see idolatry and sin. We see the systems of exploitation that take advantage of people for financial or personal gain. We see abuse of power. We see a disregard for relationships and so on and so forth, all the way to the messes that we see in our own lives the messes and the difficulties we experience, whether they're big or small, whether we create them ourselves or whether they're thrust upon us. It's easy to see the way things are, but in Christ we also see and experience the way things can and will be when Jesus reigns as Lord. And the hope we can take from this story is that Jesus is already reigning as Lord and King in this world even now. And believing in him is always the answer to the current situation. This is the gospel. This is the good news. Jesus comes into our mess, comes into the mess of this world, and he makes things right. And we have access to that power by claiming and submitting to Jesus as Lord over all of our life. It's what the jailer and his family do here. It's what Paul and Silas have already done. And it's what we're called to do. So where in your life do you need to open back up to Jesus and trust him to be Lord, Master, Ruler, Owner? What are the messes in your life right now that you're having a hard time seeing past? Maybe it's something at work, a difficult situation with a coworker or with your boss or just unhappiness in your job or maybe you need a job and that's the mess in your life right now or something unethical going on at your place of employment and you don't know how to address that. Maybe there's something going on in your marriage where it's, just not right. Maybe it's not bad, but it's just not right. It doesn't feel like it's going to get right. Or in your, your family with your kids or with your parents, there's a, something going on. Or, or with a, a friend, there's a strained relationship. You just see and feel that mess with finances, with our sin, it doesn't mean it will be easy. It wasn't for Paul and Silas. It wasn't for the jailer. But it's the start to making things right. Jesus is Lord is the answer that makes things right. So as we close today, how does that happen? I can't, I can't tell you exactly for you how that happens. But I can tell you for me, usually... There's a need to open myself up and to be honest with myself, and sometimes to have someone else be honest with me and point out that sin, that pride, that selfishness, that busyness whatever it is that's crept into my life that's pushed Jesus out. A few months ago, I have permission to share this. A few months ago, Allison and I had an argument, as married couples do sometimes. And when I stopped and went back and really thought about that argument an hour or so later, and she was really hurt, and I was hurt, I started looking at just kind of the whole argument and the things that I said and everything that took place in that and, and I realize that most of the time in a, in a situation like that, in any relationship where you're, there's difficulty, both sides have some fault. But I realized in this moment anyway that she didn't have any fault. It was, it was all my fault. And I got to tell you, it is incredibly humbling to have to swallow your pride and go back and say, I'm the one that really messed up here. And for me, I needed to do that so that I could submit to Jesus as Lord of my life in my marriage at that moment. Or I think about about things. One of the things that we did about a year ago was we decided to cut a few things out of our schedule and out of our life because it was taking up so much mental energy. And it wasn't that we were spending a lot of time outside of home on it but we noticed that our conversations at home were dominated by these things that really weren't that important. And we realized that there were lots of emails and lots of conversations and lots of things taking place, lots of thoughts and strain taking place over to some things that really had no business taking up that much time, if any time, in our lives. And so we decided to cut it out because Jesus is Lord over our minds. And when we're spending too much time giving mental thought and energy and life to something that is not, it's not bad, but it's not good, it's not best, then it had to go, because we're trying to submit. And I can tell you for me, sometimes it looks like that, that realization of the parent fail. When you're out at the soccer game, when you're out on the soccer field, And our four-year-old at the time, now five-year-old, we have an expectation for the way that she's gonna play the soccer game that day, and it doesn't quite go that way. And we're frustrated, and we can't figure out what's going on, and she runs off the field saying, look, Mommy, my fingernail polish is still on. (laughs) Parent fail, but thanks for the reminder. I wonder sometimes how much time for me I've spent focusing on sports or other things that aren't nearly as important as Jesus. They're not bad, and maybe those aren't things we cut out, but how do we make Jesus Lord over that? Forgiveness, prayer, simplicity, and looking at our schedule having relationships and friends that we can look at and that can look at us and tell us about those things in our lives that we can't necessarily see ourselves. I think it's important to note that Paul and Silas were together because I think they were doing something for one another that encouraged that seeing, that encouraged their response in the midst of that circumstance. And then... The part of the story we read this morning ends with this feast and this celebration. What a beautiful picture of teachers and new believers, all former sinners gathered together, sharing a meal and sharing stories and loving one another and accepting one another and growing together to be more like Jesus. Submission to Jesus as Lord, leads to relationship with God and one another. Submission to Jesus as Lord leads to peace and joy and hope in any circumstance. Submission to Jesus as Lord leads to power that wants to make things right in the world, and we get to be a part of that. So as you listen to this story and read and reread this story, Where in your life do you need to submit so that the power of God can cause you in any situation to praise him in our words, our thoughts, our attitudes, our lives? Let's pray. Lord, this morning...